there probably are a few hotter topics, no puns intended, than uh, energetics and propulsion these days. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. An innovative technology promises to increase the range or shrink the size of air-launched munitions. We'll talk to Dr. Wes Naylor, the CEO of Helicon Chemical, the company that's working to make that happen. And it's time for our monthly update on air and missile defenses with CSIS's Dr. Tom Carrico. And we'll have the week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Vago, this week's headline items come from Capitol Hill. We've now seen the chairman's mark of the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act and the Airland Subcommittee mark. There's a good bit of news coming out of both of those. The House would allow the Air Force to retire 42 A-10s and 57 F-15CDs. At the same time, they'd require Secretary Kendall to report on how the service will maintain capability, capacity, and proficiency in close air support, forward air controllers, and combat search and rescue missions. The HASC would require the Secretary of Defense to designate the F-35C2D2 upgrade program as a major sub-program, increasing its visibility and reporting requirements. They do the same for all of the F-35 Block 4 and Technical Refresh 3 sub-programs as well. In a classic move, the House bill would restrict the Army's travel funding until the Secretary of the Army submits an analysis of alternatives for the future Armed Reconnaissance Aircraft program. UAV programs would be required to be put into one of three categories, expendable, attritable, or exquisite. So if I ever get three cats, I know what I'm going to name them. The Army has to report on lessons from Ukraine for air and missile defense and to study putting the Gray Eagle into the National Guard. The Secretary of the Air Force has to submit a report on how the service plans to provide mobile air defense to remote and forward deployed airfields. They're winking at the Air Force's agile combat employment experiments. And the chairman's mark also includes $588 million for the Adaptive Engine Transition Program, so the discussion about the best engine for the F-35 isn't over quite yet. And Vago, you'll remember that was kind of foreshadowed in our conversation with Representative Rob Whitman a couple of months ago. In, indeed it was, and uh, but he was very muted and didn't want to put any uh, fingers on the scale, if, uh, if I uh, recall <laughs> that conversation. Anyway, you have one more item. I do have one more item because the Government Accountability Office, not wanting to be left out of all this Capitol Hill news, came up and pointed out that the Department of Defense's acquisition policies and procurement programs have resulted in great delays. In fact, they say that more than half of DOD's major programs are behind schedule. In the air realm, F-35 comes most significantly to mind. But Vago, this is a perennial problem that you've discussed with a number of people on various shows because it really is a tension between taking risk and advancing or playing it safe and falling behind. Indeed. Uh, but one of the things uh, I would point out is 
program managers, program executive officers, senior service officials, senior DOD officials. I mean, the last thing they want to do is to go up to the hill and get beaten about the head and shoulders Mm -hmm. and or to have a GAO report written about their program. So, you know, the GAO is pointing out we're you know, risk averse, which is why we get into these problems and why we're slow. Well, we're risk averse. I mean, this is like sort of the people who brandish the hammers and hit you in the head all the time mm-hmm. are now complaining that you wince each time you see a hammer because it could be headed for your head. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's a side of me that's like, okay, great guys. But I mean, the whole ecosystem has to change its approach and to try to do uh, what members are doing, for example, to, uh, you know, Christine Wormuth, right? Give me alternatives. You know, at the end of the day, you're either empowering people to make the decisions they have to make uh, in order to drive forward. You know, obviously Congress has an oversight, uh, critically important oversight role to to right wrongs, for example, to try to get uh, the adaptive engine, you know, ATP program uh, moving, given that we know that it's critical to the next block of the, of the F-35. On the other hand, you know, you have to try to do this in a way where it's empowering of people. And if you keep hitting them in the head with hammers, I don't know. You're just going to get more risk aversion. Sure. Who wants to get hit with a hammer? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there may be one or two people on Capitol Hill, but they're not public about it. Look, you get the behavior that you create incentives for. And over and over, the incentives say, if you move fast and don't get it quite right the first time, you're going to get heavily punished. If you move slowly and give it more time to get it right, then you're less likely to run afoul of those same hammers, as you talked about. And so you get the result that is to be expected when there are only penalties in the system and not a lot of rewards for doing it better. It would seem as though, and we've talked about this a little bit, it's sort of a confluence of a whole bunch of factors that don't necessarily bode well for the F-35. With a block four uh, which is very, very important, is being delayed. Each of the services is, or at least the Air Force is buying fewer of them because it doesn't want to have reworked airplanes. We need a new engine in order to try to get there or at least significantly upgrade the existing engine. Which, I mean, just bringing it up to spec, as, as everybody now acknowledges, is about a $38 billion task. How does this bode for the F-35 as both of the services are racing as quickly as they can to try to get to uh, the next generation air dominance airplane and the future the, in the, the Navy's FAXX. Well, at the very least, it's a vote of little confidence. I won't say no confidence, but when you start saying that we want better visibility into sub parts of your program, we are not trusting you program manager, program office to move the money around appropriately. We want to understand and see what's happening in the parts of the program that are falling behind, look, it's perfectly within Congress's oversight responsibilities to do that. But it's also saying that they don't quite trust the people who are running the program right now, in part because of the results that they're seeing on these sub-programs. I like your three uh, cats, um, uh, three cats <laughs> crack. Um, I'm not sure I would want to call them that, but anyway, they're lovely names all. Um, well, yeah, I, although expendable is probably going to be looking yes, over his shoulder. Expendable is not one unless he's wearing a red shirt. But um, <laughs> uh, sorry. So how does that change the debate at all? Right. I mean, what is the utility and the value of these definitions? Because at the end of the day, even if it's exquisite, you have to be willing to lose it. Right. Uh, Sir, Sir George Zambellis, who was a former first sea lord of the Royal Navy, somebody had asked, you know, and I think I asked him once, okay, you only have two carriers, do you risk them? He's like, if we don't risk them and we don't sail them into harm's way with an expectation that they will be sunk, 
you don't do it willy-nilly, but for the right reason, we're willing to risk it. And if it's a warship, it has no value if, if you're never going to risk it. I mean, so it can be exquisite and you risk. Anyway, I mean, what, how does this change the calculus in, what, in your mind? What it does is it changes the way Congress allocates money in each of those categories, because if you have a drone that you're intending to be expendable, you're not going to want to spend as much money on it as an exquisite drone. And Congress would look at that and go, well, I've got this expendable drone and it's starting to get very expensive. I have another expendable drone over here. Maybe we should put more money instead into that program and speed it up. It lets them see more clearly what the trade-offs are in each category of UAV instead of just saying, well, it's a UAV, whether it's a global hawk or a predator, it's the same bucket of money. And uh, what do you make of uh, the decision? I mean, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, we have a vast arsenal of Reapers and Gray Eagles, uh, a lot of capability, which, you know, the, the attitude is to phase it out. Obviously, everybody knows that General Atomics is our sponsor, but we're seeing that that class of airplane can be really, really handy in terms of the tailorable mission packages they carry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whether it's in a Ukraine scenario or in a Western Pacific scenario, War games have proven there's a role for these uh, kinds of aircraft. What's your sense in uh, moving that capability to the guard where they would, you know, get a lot of tender, loving care because guard units do a terrific job taking care of their aircraft? Well, at first I was surprised to see it because the Army doesn't have that many Gray Eagles and you'd think they'd want as much of that capability forward as they could. But it occurred to me that what you have here is an opportunity to turn the guard into trainers for other countries in how to use these kinds of UAVs. The same way the California Air National Guard has been working with the Ukrainians and training them to fly fighters. So here is the army creating a possibility of moving that capability to friends and allies. Uh, And uh, last question, what are the top things you're going to be paying attention to at the Paris Air Show where we'll be both uh, evidently sweating and uh, trying to (laughs) dodge the rain? So nothing like being on an exposed runway for uh, a couple of days with bad weather coming through and not much shelter when you really need it. Yes, but it's at least it's French rain, right, Vago, which is probably more expensive (laughs) and comes in really pretty bottles. It is. It's very chic. It's chic rain. uh, (laughs) And we will be honored to be showered with it. Go on. I think the main things I'm going to be looking for fall in the category of sixth generation programs. Number one, do we learn something more about NGAD than we already know? Is the Air Force at a point where they're going to let out a little bit of news on that? Perhaps even more relevantly, what about SCAF or FCAS and Tempest, the two European programs to develop similar aircraft? Are they going to start announcing new partners, time scales, estimated costs for those aircraft, potential customers for those aircraft? There's so much we don't know that isn't in the technical classified category but the programs are just getting mature enough to start thinking about what is the actual market, who can buy these, what are they going to cost? I think we may get some visibility into some of that. And of course, there's the usual occasional surprise of a country declaring that they intend to buy a whole lot of something that you didn't know they were even interested in to begin with. So it's the surprises more than anything that make the air shows fun. Indeed. Uh, and, and those would be much of the same. I mean, I'm sort of interested in a little bit of the industrial nuance on, you know, how we're increasing uh, production rates, because these are really the arsenals of democracy. 
mm-hmm. that we'll be meeting on that runway um, and uh, in, at that uh, airfield, the historic airfield outside the French capital. Uh, and so I'm going to be interested in, you know, yeah, I mean, what happens with the Franco-German Spanish program? What happens with the now called the Global Combat Aircraft, uh, once upon a time known as Tempest? Uh, and then, uh, obviously, the program that's led by the UK uh, that includes Italy, includes Sweden, includes Japan, and and obviously London's trying to grow that. And and indeed, my, my thing is, it, it doesn't really matter what any of our allies and partners do. I think ultimately, whatever it is that we develop has to be able to be easily connected, which is a message I think both uh, General Brown, uh, the Air Force Chief of Staff, and Air Force Secretary Kendall have said, you know, we can do NGAD. It can be highly classified, but as long as it connects well to what all of our allies and partners are doing, we should be fine, right? Not to recreate the F-22 that lives mm-hmm. in a tower all its own, but doesn't really connect, connects much better than it does, but it was never really designed to connect with much. And the two other things that come to mind out of that is, where are these other countries in developing collaborative aircraft? Is that part of their plan for their sixth generation? We haven't really seen it out of the other two programs besides NGAD. Is there going to be some unveiling of that? And of course, the highlight of every Paris air show is the rocketry competition between students from the United States, Japan, and Europe for global supremacy. And who who are you putting your money on? Having run the Team America rocketry contest for three years, I'm going with the USA. Absolutely. Go red, white, and blue. JJ, uh, may, may may the force be with you. Uh, as uh, this uh, new generation uh, pursues rocketry excellence uh, at at a uh, historic airfield. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And joining us now is Dr. Tom Carrico of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He leads the Think Tank's Missile Defense Project. Tom, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be on the Air Power Show, Vago. Tom, it's game time in Ukraine. It looks like the long-awaited counteroffensive is finally underway. And about the same time, There's a new commitment from the U.S. to provide about $2.1 billion in aid. Much of that is hawk and patriot. How is this going to help the Ukrainians? Is it enough? And what do you do about UAV defense and the fact that a hawk missile or a patriot costs a lot more than the UAV that's coming in? Well, right. You're right. So that was the June 9 tranche of of aid, as you say, $2.1 billion. Some of that will go sooner. Some of it may be coming a little later. Uh, it's presumably replenishment missiles uh, for the existing Patriot battery that we have there, as well as some uh, artillery and UAVs and, and other things uh, as well. There was also a May 31 $300 million package that also had some Patriots and, and Stingers and, uh, and other things. Uh, you're right. Those interceptors are, of course, relatively more expensive, but you certainly don't want to be using a Patriot against a cheap UAV, to your point. Uh, JJ, if you don't have to. And that's why it's always about layered defense. And that's why it's looking for some uh, less expensive, whether it be Hawk, whether it be uh, counter OES, kinetic and non-kinetic things of various kinds. You certainly don't want to use your highest end 
uh, advanced air defense interceptor to take out something uh, something cheap. And that's why you want a, a diversity of things to mix and match your defense most effectively. Uh, I will put a plug in here that my program at CSIS, my colleague Sean Shake, uh, is putting the final touches on a new counter UAS uh, report that'll be out here in the coming months this, later this summer uh, to talk about exactly those kind of issues that you highlighted. Tom, uh, when you've joined us in the past, you've also noted, right, the Iris T, the German Iris T system is very good. So the Ukrainians have a very sort of diverse, you know, variety of systems that they've stitched together uh, into this battle uh, architecture. Sadly, the the Ukrainians reported that the Russians managed to hit one of the, the radars for an Iris T, but that is to be expected. Unfortunately, but it also gives you kind of a different degree of uh, resilience. Speaking of battlefield defenses, uh, the U.S. Army has been working its cruise missile defenses under the IFPIC program a little while, and it looks like that program's delayed. Bring us up to speed on what's going on. Yeah, this was just announced this past week. Uh, it kind of been expected. There have been some some indications of supply chain problems for the for the particular launcher. It's called the Enduring Shield launcher for the larger umbrella program called IFPIC, which is uh, a mouthful that, that stands for indirect virus protection capability and has various kinetic and non-kinetic things. But the Enduring Shield launcher uh, is what's going to be shooting AIM-9 missiles. It's it's a critical capability uh, for basically, it's essentially the Army's cruise missile defense program. Uh, and it's going to be a key component uh, for the defense of Guam. So a little bit of a setback in terms of what was supposed to be kind of here coming shortly. Uh, it's probably going to be early uh, FY25, the Army PEO is now saying. So a little bit of setback, but I'm sure that they're going to be doing everything they can to bring that back to the left uh, as soon as possible. And recently you had as a guest at CSIS, Moshe Patel, the director of the Israel Missile Defense Organization. No country on the planet has more actual experience with missile defense than they do. What did we learn from that discussion? Yeah, it was a great discussion. I appreciate Moshe coming over. That was on May 30. Uh, so just about two weeks ago, uh, and we really covered the waterfront of kind of where all the different uh, Israeli air missile defense programs are at, everything from Iron Dome to uh, their Sea Dome, which is the, the seaborne version of Iron Dome, uh, to uh, Arrow and David Sling, which recently had a, a combat intercept, uh, actually, to their more advanced kind of Arrow 3 and actually uh, forthcoming Arrow 4. Uh, which will actually replace their Arrow 2. So lots going on in, in that world. Uh, Moshe Patel is the director of the Israeli Missile Defense Organization, uh, which has been around since 1991. It's a longstanding relationship with the United States. Uh, of course, there's a lot of uh, cooperation between the United States Missile Defense Agency uh, and his organization. He hi highlighted that for testing, but also for co-development and co-production. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that. There's been a couple announcements in Europe, for instance, Finland uh, is acquiring David Sling, and Germany last week uh, signed uh, some additional paperwork indicating that they're going forward with the Aero 3 acquisition. It's a costly investment. It was over $4 billion, uh, the German agreement as, as reported. So it's a, it's a big investment, but you see the demand system for those systems, especially in Europe right now. Tom, Thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. I'm glad we're getting on a regular uh, battle rhythm with you. And I commend the audience to check out your conversation uh, because CSIS does such a terrific job posting uh, its content uh, online. So check out Tom's conversation with Moshe Patel uh, of the Israel Missile Defense Organization. Thanks so very much again for joining us and look forward to having you back on again next month. None of this matters if you're dead. That's why you need air defense. Thanks, Wago. <laughs>
<laughs> that's that's true. None of this matters if you're dead. Everybody write that down. Wisdom from Dr. Carrick. Oh, from, from, from General Mark Milley. A wise man. And joining us now is Dr. Wes Naylor. He is a retired United States Navy captain uh, who is now uh, the CEO of an innovative energetics company called Helicon Chemical. They've sponsored our coverage uh, in the past, and he's been CEO of the company now uh, for about a year. And, and the company itself is an outgrowth of the University of Central Florida, where Wes has long been a professor and lecturer. Wes, thanks so very much for joining us on the Air Power podcast. Well, thank you so much for having us today, Vago. It is uh, a pleasure uh, having you on. Let me uh, start with what's happened new. You know, you joined us a couple of months ago and we had a terrific conversation. You've joined us a couple of times, actually, where we've had conversations. And now, you know, you went from uh, just some work that you guys were doing with China Lake and the Air Force Research Lab. You've got former uh, Vice Chief of Naval Operations, Bill Moran, now on the board. Bring us up to speed on where you guys are, because the pace and the speed with which you guys are doing stuff is accelerating. And indeed, uh, there's even draft congressional language to try to accelerate the energetics portfolio overall. And our uh, mutual friend uh, from the Hudson Institute, Brian Clark, has been on to discuss that as well. Bring us up to speed. Well, absolutely. Vago, you know, it's just there There probably are a few hotter topics, no puns intended, than uh, energetics and propulsion these days with uh, what's going on in the world, whether it's uh, uh, replacing the inventory that we've been burning through with our NATO partners or preparing for contingency operations in uh, the theaters where peer competitors have outpaced us uh, in regard to distance and range. Uh, probably that is what's really driving the interest in what Helicon has been doing. Uh, you know, Every overnight sensation uh, or anything that seems like it's an overnight sensation usually has many years of hard work behind it. And that's certainly the case with Helicon. It's built on about nine years of work that started out uh, supporting some doctoral research for the Missile Defense Agency. Uh, but, you know, that's how long it really takes to mature and develop a technology that can be a game changer. So, you know, what we've done in the last year is move from laboratory scale to setting up our first pilot plant. Uh, we're looking to partner with folks in the Navy, the Air Force, and the Army to cross that transition from SBIR into big A acquisition and working with specific programs of record and specific weapon systems where we can really bring some uh, goodness to the warfighters and as far as their uh, capabilities of their weapon systems. I've got to ask a newbie question, which is, we've been putting explosives into binders for literally centuries. Why didn't somebody think of this before? Is there some new development in chemistry that allows you to get more energy out of the binder itself? You know, that's, it's a great question, and it really goes back to uh, our founder and uh, principal investigator, Dr. David Reed's work. And, you know, when it comes to solid rockets, there really has not been much of an improvement in the underlying materials for about 50 or 60 years, uh, because we've found some things that work pretty well. Uh, you know, aluminum as a solid fuel, that's about as energy dense as you can get. Uh, AP for an oxidizer, that's a pretty good solution there, too. But uh, the binder was really always looked at more for its material capabilities for performance in cold weather or hot weather, uh, as opposed to something that could enhance the performance 
and uh, the energy output of the actual formulation. So that is something that David saw in his research, and that's where he has really moved the uh, needle in looking at the binder as something that can contribute to the energetic output. Indeed. Let me uh, ask you a valley of death question, Wes, as well as sort of combining those efforts, right? Uh, Historically, the department has done this in kind of a piecemeal way, whereas what you guys are proposing, uh, at least based on what it is uh, that's uh, been discussed, is a tremendous increase in potential range up to 30%. So either the same weapon has 30% more range, or you could build a smaller weapon that has uh, the range of a current munition, and therefore you can you can carry that uh, more. It applies to the Army, to the Navy, to the Air Force, uh, to the Marines, uh, ultimately, as, as well as to the space agency and, and, and space firms. Two-part question, Wes. First, how do you guys cross the valley of death, uh, which is a challenge? You know, small business contracts are, are helpful, but there is a big gap there that you guys have to cross before you, uh, you know, emerge on the other side as a, a going industrial concern. And another part of that is that the department tends to be very fractured how it goes about this, where, uh, you know, with each of the services doing their own things, as opposed to actually having a DOD-wide effort that actually drives the capability more uniformly, given that what it is that you guys are offering, nobody else on the planet is able to do. How do you navigate both of these to make sure there's more unity of effort? And how do you get through the valley of death ultimately, especially at a time when access to capital is hard? Well, it's all great questions. And uh, Yavaga, I would start out by saying, due to the uh, sensitivity of what we work with, we as a firm do not put actual numbers on it. However, uh, we certainly... uh, know and have demonstrated significant increases in range, but uh, I would not put a hard number on it, certainly uh, not a public format. Uh, that said, you know, the goal or the task, which proves so hard to move from the world of SBIR into program of record, that is the valley of death. You know, we have been enormously good stewards of the taxpayer's money in executing SBIRs and OTAs to bring this technology to where we are crossing into the technology readiness level of six with our current work. And, you know, in my view, there's a very specific joint way to go at this um, that is specifically designed to take TRL-6 work and get it into weapon system in accelerated fashion. And that is through the advanced technology demonstrator regime. It comes with a couple of different names, joint technology demonstrator, Uh, or Advanced Technology Demonstrator. And that is a program that DOD has had around for quite a while that goes in and out of fashion, but is very specifically around providing the funding and the avenues to take a promising technology that has applicability across multiple services and multiple use cases and get it across the valley of death. You know, we're having a lot of meetings with uh, senior DOD officials and uh, uh, service component officials. And, you know, what we're trying to do is help out on that acquisition side, too, because this is an important and rapid acquisition of having a vehicle where we don't have to go out and look for 150 program managers and try and talk to each one of them and walk them through how this could come into their weapon system of choice at the right spiral. But them having one central point, one small business contractor that they can come to and say, we want to do the prototyping in our weapon system under this 
advanced technology demonstrator that then allows us to rapidly qualify it in their weapon system and then partner with the OEMs to do the enhancement at scale. So I think that's really, you know, from the technical side, the fastest way to get there. And that's what we're trying to work with the department right now. On the capital side, uh, it has been a fast year. We did our first uh, private equity raise just about nine months ago. Uh, we closed that raise and, uh, you know, we really are not having any issues. What we have uh, appears pretty attractive to private equity folks and we're getting good support from our government partners. So we haven't had a problem for the, our needs at this point in time, but in order to scale this, especially in production, capacity, we will have to look at some of the things that the DOD and our leaders on capital have been putting forward through Defense Production Act, Office of Strategic Capital, and some of these other initiatives that are designed to allow small companies to make the deep investments in infrastructure to support the underserved energetics and weapons market. Vago had you bring us up to date on where you've been. Let's talk a little about where you're going. Understanding that you don't want to give any heads up to potential competitors, what general direction or technologies do you find appealing and Helicon wants to look at in the future? Our entire approach to this, again, is we don't see Helicon as displacing anyone in the current infrastructure. We see ourselves as additive. In fact, we very publicly say our approach to this is open architecture for energetics. We can and do work with every OEM and lead systems integrator in the weapons and aerospace domain. So we're we're a partner there. I, if you remember the old days of the chemical company BASF, uh, where they say, we don't make the products you use, we make the products you use better. That's our approach as well. We're not making the missiles, we're not making the rocket motors, but we're making them better through a material science solution. So we really see ourselves as a blue ocean type of play for the defense infrastructure base for propulsion, conventional, future propulsion, solid fuel ramjet. And then we're also doing work with the Army right now for explosives and energetics in that way where our technology can be brought to bear as well. So it's it's really a very blue ocean uh, environment for us. Wes, let me ask you one last question before we part. Um, it's been an action-packed uh, year for you guys. Uh, what's on the table in the next uh, 12 to 18 months? Well, the next 12 to 18 months are, are critical for us in actually executing on partnering with programs of record, because that's where the transition and you know, navigating the valley of death really comes into being. SBIRs have been wonderful for us. They've allowed us to mature technology. There are a lot of additional offshoots that we could do for other use cases that that would be great. And we're not putting that away. But in order to truly bring our technology to bear, it has to go in with a weapon system. We have to prove it in the weapon system because that's the way propellants and energetics are qualified. They're not qualified separately. They have to be qualified with the system. And certainly, as you mentioned, there is language uh, on Capitol Hill that would look at a number of things, such as uh, creating centers where these unique and uh, emerging technologies 
could be qualified more rapidly and maybe qualified in their own behalf instead of having to qualify them with each weapon system individually. And that would be a major move forward for our ability to bring this technology and other technologies, uh, folks are working on things that can go across multiple weapon systems to bear in a timeline that matters for facing our peer competitors. Uh, and uh, access uh, to capital, are you, uh, do you have access to the capital you need to keep growing? It's a tough market. It is a tough market. And, you know, I would say, Vago, we're at that inflection point as well. You know, we have managed to get enough capital uh, as a small business to prove out our technology and to prove that we can scale this up at the pilot level. But we will need access to bigger capital pools, whether that is purely private equity or private equity partnered with uh, government guarantees or government uh, grants. Uh, it's going to take uh, a lot of people coming together to be able to really finance the investments in the defense infrastructure base that are needed over the next five years. So, you know, we're exploring all those with uh, the private side of the house and with our government partners. Wes Naylor, the CEO of Helicon Chemical, thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Absolutely, JJ and Vago, thank you so much for having me today. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.